Today is Monday, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast. Uh, my name is Hunter Hilligus. I'm with RateVegas.com, and I'm here with some friends. We're going to talk about uh, what's happening in uh, the, the Vegas and re- larger gaming world. Um, Jeff Simpson's here from, well, Jeff, where are you from? What do you do? I'm the executive editor of In Business Las Vegas, a business weekly here in the city, and also uh, write a gaming column for the Las Vegas Sun where I'm the business editor. Excellent. And uh, Chuck, what's your story? Oh, my story is uh, I am uh, the uh, head writer guy for Vegas Tripping and the Macau Tripping and a couple other sites. All right. Excellent. Uh, Dave Schwartz. Um, I'm at the Center for Gaming Research at UNLV, and I have the new and improved divecast.com. Yes, that's right, new and improved. I'll let you, I'll let you talk about that a little bit in a moment. Um, and then uh, David McKee, you're here as well. Yes, uh, managing editor at uh, Las Vegas Advisor, and um, working, spending a lot of time working on uh, reorganizing our question of the day database. Uh, huh. Hopefully, reorganizing some of that into an FAQ. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, you know, uh, b- between all of us, uh, I think we represent quite uh, a nice cross section of inter- interesting Las Vegas resources on the web between all of our respective organizations. So, you know, it's it's always cool to see new tools come in and people repurposing their information. I know that I'm actually working on a couple of new projects. Uh, I, I'm really keen on the mobile idea and the and bringing info to people while they're traveling, and I've got a couple of mobile projects up my sleeve. And uh, I've already done some stuff for the Apple iPhone. That's been a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to doing more and always looking forward to seeing what all of you guys come up with. So... Very good. Um, we've got a bunch of interesting topics that we can talk about today um, to kind of uh, run the gamut. We've had a couple companies report earnings that were interesting, and I think MGM Mirage is tomorrow morning, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then some other interesting interesting topics from uh, Atlantic City, Macau, and uh, Las Vegas. But out of the gate, Jeff Simpson, you mentioned something right before we started regarding the Tropicana. Do you want to... Uh, fill us in on what's going on? Sure. Well, the Wall Street Journal uh, filed a story uh, by uh, Jeffrey McCracken and Tamara Audi today, and uh, um, it said the Tropicana Entertainment LLC, that's that um, sort of separate entity underneath Columbia, Sussex, that they created to hold uh, their casino properties, most of their casino properties, including all of the Aztar properties, that 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 entity, Tropicana Entertainment, is expected to file for bankruptcy protection as early today. Um, and and um, if so, it would be the largest corporate bankruptcy of the year. Um, and uh, you know, and and I mean, on but also it wouldn't be a surprise. Um, I think that you know, uh, and probably on earlier podcasts, um, I, I I think all of us have said that we expect that. Uh, you know that it is not a viable ongoing entity. Um, they have, uh, particularly with some of the uh, legal defeats that they've suffered, um, they may have done. They've done some scrambling to try and keep their uh, maybe the slimmest part of their nose above water. But um, I think uh, if this story is true, and the uh, reporting that some of the folks are doing here in our newsroom indicates that it is, I think that uh, um, it's not a surprise. 
Well, what are the uh, sorry? What are the implications a for the labor negotiations at the Tropicana and b for the uh, the ability to uh, hang on to their assets because they've they've pledged the, that uh, Tropicana basically as as security to those for the unsecured debt. bondholders yes. who who wanted to call the loan in because of the New Jersey license revocation. Um, the implication for the Tropicana's workers that's unclear. Um, typically, a bankruptcy reorganization allows companies to. Uh, to change the terms of labor agreements, but in this case, um, you know, if they did, they would face a strike. Um, you know, common sense would have dictated that long ago the Tropicana would have just, you know, signed a, signed a contract parallel to everyone else on the strip. That's just a headache that they don't need. Um, but. Um, you know, Bill Young, the owner of Columbia Sussex, is obviously a very uh, stubborn and, uh, in the way of the casino business, none too bright guy. Um, and uh, he has uh, he has um, evidently decided that you know he wants to fight the culinary union um, as weak as his company is. It's probably not the smartest time. Um, he lost a big battle in New Jersey, um, partly to the culinary. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I don't think, you know, logic would, would say that they wouldn't want to have a huge strike at their Las Vegas property right now. But when you try and ascribe logic to Bill Young and Columbia Sussex, I think that's probably a mistake. So could it mean that they would ask the bankruptcy court for the ability to get out of their union contracts? Maybe. I mean, it would be ridiculous and foolhardy, but, you know, I mean, I've this company has surprised me time and again. Mm-hmm. Well, what does, I mean, does this put a, you know, not a protraction of the, the uh, of the labor talks, but also the, the extension till mid-May with Wilmington Trust, who held that $960 million worth of debt, does that cast those moves in a different light is it you know is it conceivable that they were you know planning this filing and they were just uh you know stalling for time you know the thing and, and according to the wall street journal story that this is sort of a you know sort of a last minute kind of um on the fly decision that they've made um they missed a uh, they evidently missed a uh, um fairly big payment um, last Friday, and uh, and I I can't remember. I read it earlier in the day, but um, it was a um, pretty big payment that they missed. And I remember. And so, how it will affect those things, I just don't know. Um, but you know, I I presume that the company has set up this subsidiary um, in a way that isolates the rest of the Columbia Sussex assets, um, you know, pretty well. And it will just come down to the casino assets, which you know are pretty separate. Could could Columbia Sussex end up losing all of those assets? I think it's pretty uh, it's a pretty strong likelihood. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, definitely. Uh, I don't like you just said, Jeff. I don't think anyone here would be surprised um, to see this go this way. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how the story uh, unravels and unfolds here. Hunter, I, I saw on your uh, on your blog your, uh, you, that you 
that you went to some really great restaurants in Las Vegas last weekend, but I noticed none of them were at the Tropicana. Yeah, you know, I haven't set foot in the Tropicana for quite some time, and the last time that I did, uh, the thing that struck me the most is I went to go, uh, I saddled up to a craps table to see if I could throw the dice for a few minutes, and my beer didn't fit in the drink tray um, <laughs> underneath the table because it had been, I think, put back together with duct tape. And so I kind of just decided to turn around and walk out at that point. So, wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, deferred maintenance takes on a whole uh, <laughs> a whole other meaning in this case. But I'm sorry I didn't bring my camera with me when I did my secret shopper thing over there because it was, I mean, you know, if, if people wouldn't believe the the photographs even if they saw them. Yeah, I, I mean, it, you know, it's obvious that these guys have cut it down to the bone. And, uh, you know, if they do that and they still can't get things to pull, to pull together, I, you know, I think uh, we'll probably end up with someone else running that place at some point in the not-too-distant future. And uh, I don't think any of us are going to shed any tears for them. No. I'll, I'll, I'll be sure. I'm going to be out there this weekend. So uh, I'll be uh, at the uh, the Green Monster across the street. So I've got, I've got plans to uh, do a little recon at the Tropicana. So hopefully I'll I'll get some groovy photos of bed bugs and whatnot. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, leaving the Tropicana behind for a moment, um, I want to fly on over to the distant land of China and talk a little bit about, about Macau. So there are Two two American companies with casinos in Macau, uh, Las Vegas Sands and Wind Resorts, both and and MGM Mirage. That's well, yes, MGM Mirage tomorrow will report the results. I was going to say they oh. uh, are have reported, um, so we get some idea of of how the numbers are going. And um, so, not only do we have some information on some of the on some of the numbers, which is interesting, and we'll get to that in a second. But the big story out of Macau recently, I think, was the story the that. Future concessions will be limited to basically what's existing, sort of putting the brakes on uh, on gaming expansion in Macau. Um, the players are set, at least for the uh, immediate and uh, near future term. Um, and uh, I thought that was a pretty major story. So, Chuck, you follow Macau pretty closely on a regular basis. Do you want to uh, quickly give us an overview on what happened? Well, uh, pretty much... Uh the uh, the Chinese government, in concert with uh, the, the Macau SAR government, have uh, decided to put the brakes on uh, expansion of casinos in in Macau. Uh, and they're doing this in two ways. One is they're not offering any more concessions. There are six concessions, uh, three concessions and three sub-concessions. Uh, all of those were... Uh, Given upon, uh, they were going to uh, decide whether or not they were going to give more concessions in 2009, and they've decided not to. Additionally, there will be no further casino developments in Macau, Kotai, Taipa, uh, moving forward. Uh, I think what they're 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 kind of trying to do here is, uh, under the ruse of you know protecting the population from the crazy growth of gambling and whatnot, and keeping their eyeballs on everything is uh, they're I think they're going to kind of like shake out some of the uh, older SJM dumpy kind of properties <laughs> uh, as, as the new ones, uh, the new ones come online. Uh, a lot of the word is that everything that has been planned or talked about on Kotai has been grandfathered in uh, as will be the uh, Melco PBL 
uh, Trinity property, uh, which is on the peninsula. Uh, and that includes like all the LVS on Hotel Row, uh, the uh, Wynn Kotai project, the MGM Kotai project, uh, the uh, Macau Studio City, of course, which is under construction, and their uh, SJM has two plots on Kotai as well. So all of those are going to be uh, grandfathered in. Uh, LVS said in their call that the plan was 40 total casinos in Macau, 10 on Kotai. Uh, what, what's probably going to happen after that fact uh, is, you know, some of the older joints are going to get wrecked and closed and, and moved and redone as the, uh, the Oceanus project has been bagged, which was this big, huge, monstrous, quite interesting looking, I might add, you know, a, a very uh, uh, fascinating arch architectural Panic design. Panic of the it's, East. <laughs> yeah, it's like this gigantic whale that, that, that ran aground like steamrollered over the top of the Macau Palace, the floating casino. For anybody who's ever been there, they know that thing. It just slammed right into that, right across the Avenida de Amazade, through the new Yaohan department building, and right into the uh, uh, Casino Highlight, which is the biggest dump in the world. Uh, but that thing has been bagged. Uh, they're going to build something there. They're not exactly sure. Uh, so I think some of the other ones, and some of the other smaller hotel ones, like the Casino Kempek and the outlying areas are, are, are probably going to get hosed. Okay, so, so here's my question. Win, winners and losers here. Okay, so winners, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, winners, I would say, you know, existing uh, concession holders, including, you know, the the Americans. Um, you know, losers in short, Harris. Um, who else has lost big in this, in this equation? Well, I would definitely say Harris has lost the biggest. They made a pretty massive investment in the uh, golf course down there, the Macau Country Club, right south of the uh, Macau Studio City, uh, under the impression that, hey, you know, we're going to build a Caesars Palace or whatever. Uh, you know, and now that they're left pretty much holding the bag with that, it's not that there's no new concession, because they could have gone around that, because they've been partnering with, uh, you know, they got an investment from Crown Limited. Uh, who are a part partner with uh, in uh, uh, Melco PBL? So they could have gotten you know Melco PBL to operate the casino on Harris land. But since there is now no longer no new casinos, that's been bagged completely. So now Harris paid a, a, a premium for a golf course, which will be nothing more than a golf course. Well, I mean, and and that I think you're I think you're right in the short and medium term, um, but. That you know, um, golf courses are uh, valuable commodities in in resort areas, um, and you know, Harris. First of all, this this decision isn't um, you know isn't a um, you know permanent ban on additional additional sub concessions or concessions, and the uh, you know the SAR is going to have a a new leader um, in the not too distant future um, that. Um, the the new the new government could revisit the decision. Um, I think what this this does it sort of allows for sort of uh, a little a little more reasonable absorption of the incredible capacity increases that have taken place on the peninsula and on Kotai. And uh, you know there's just been such an such an incredible amount of 
table capacity uh, that have, that's been added. Um, you know, starting with starting with SANS, but I mean, you know, even the even the Asian operators have have built you know a ton of properties in addition to um, you know Las Vegas SANS, and then also the one property each so far by MGM and and Wynn. Um, so, but I think in the long run, um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Harris could either get its own concession or could um, operate a property in conjunction with um, a win, um, a win Kotai property. Um, that's not impossible. Wynn is fairly friendly with the Harris folks, and uh, you know he's changed his mind back and forth about three or four times. That I've talked to him about what he wants to do on Kotai, and uh, you know if the opportunity's right, he could certainly change his mind again and JV there with him. Um, and you know, let's say five years, ten years down the road, the SAR decides, hey, we can use another operator, then Harris is sitting you know, pretty with a nice, you know, with a nice patch of land. And if they, and, or, or it could be used, you know, they could, they could take that resort. And right now it's nothing special, um, that course, but they could make it, you know, world-class, um, and do the kind of things that Wynn did when he remade the Desert Inn or when he built right. the, built Shadow Creek. Now, one of my one of my questions dovetails with this, and we can sort of keep the topic of Macau open here. So, if anybody wants to change the direction of the conversation, feel free. But one of the things that I saw in Las Vegas Sands report was that, or at least in some of the ancillary materials that came along with it, was regarding the Four Seasons. And I think, Chuck, maybe I even read this on your site. They were talking about how they're planning on opening the Four Seasons, and they don't need to increase the headcount at all. So basically, yeah. they don't need to hire any more employees uh, to to start uh, to open a completely, you know, another complete resort. Um, that, to me, that, you know, screams of uh, maybe things, people aren't quite as busy as they thought they were going to be. Um, is there anything to that? Yeah, well, you know, it's no secret that uh, uh, that the Venetian uh, is essentially uh, doing really well when they have convention products, but when they're not, it's not it's not killing it. Uh, and the VIP play is at all LVS properties. Everybody actually is kind of getting getting whomped by Melco PBLs. AMA deal, uh, which is bringing all the VIPs to Crown. Uh, so they've they've actually laid off uh, a number of dealers and uh, floor people at Sands, and uh, as well as at Venetian. And you know they're they're they stated in in their call that they don't need to increase headcount. You know that every that the people uh, are going to be moved over from the Venetian, which pretty much says. What it says, you know, they antagonized the SAR government when they did a big expansion of the Sands, the original LVS casino in Macau, and uh, they hired a whole bunch of people to staff these additional tables. And when the play, um, there wasn't enough play that you know they they didn't steal as much business as they thought they would from their competitors, and so a bunch of the people they hired they laid off. And that's not the kind of thing that, you know, they they, they really like 
um, in in Macau. The government officials were uh, annoyed by that. Um, I think here what they probably did is uh, most resorts overhire at the start because they have to provide a certain amount of service and they're hiring relatively inexperienced workers. And so they need extra staffing while people learn their jobs. And then as people get better, they can get they can make do with less workers and probably they figured it makes more sense rather than antagonizing the government and having to go out and rehire folks just right. keep those people and move them into the new jobs so there's probably that's probably an element of what's going on there well and employment is a very you know it's a very sore point in that market especially when the when the the Macanese see so many guest workers being imported to to build these places, and I mean this what you know the the capping of the concessions was also and the freeze on on gaming capacity was also part of a much broader serious set of of policy uh, prescriptions that um, uh, you know are partly aimed at tamping down some of the the unrest in Macau and then there there was kind of a canary in the coal mine moment just a few days before the announcement came out there was a piece that ran on Dow Jones the weekend before where uh it was it was reported that the the Chinese government was of the belief that 80 million dollars uh in Macau revenue had had gone missing um, the implication seemed to be that it had been sort of siphoned out of the country on the sly, or it wasn't entirely clear what they meant. But it, you know, the the import take that in conjunction with the with the Edmund Ho proclamation, and you know, you get the impression that that somebody in power, whether it was Edmund Ho, whether it was higher up, said, you know, these casino operators are getting a little uppity. We need to remind them who's boss here. Mm-hmm. And I agree with, with uh, Chuck. I think uh, Harris is a big loser on this. I mean, they gambled on, you know, on another round of concessions coming through. Now they, you know, they've got a golf course that they, if they tried to flip it, I I doubt they'd make a profit on it because they're, you know, it's not going to be rezoned for gaming. Uh, it was really funny when they came out with that that statement that well we're we remain committed to running a world class golf course. Right. Yeah, because you know when you think championship golf courses, the first name you think of is Harold. <laughs> you know, um, but that's uh, and and they've been retrenching in so many other markets. I don't know. Yeah, it will be interesting to see if to find out if they can justify to themselves holding on to that piece of land and hoping that that uh, the tide comes in, you know, a couple of years down the road. And I want. To I have- think to be fair to be fair to Harris, they operate Cascada in Las Vegas. It's one of the best, uh, just outside of Boulder City. Um, and uh, Rio Seco, and uh, those are two of the finest golf courses in Southern Nevada. Um, Cascada, one of the best courses in the United States, and um, you know now this this track they bought in Macau is uh, far from a world class golf course, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be made into one. Mm-hmm. The uh, now what as uh, Chuck, you said that you saw a lot of the you know the older and and frankly crappier properties down there would be sort of forced out on the mark out of the market how do you see that happening 
Well, I think, you know, if there's going to be no new casinos, uh, SJM's going to have to be more competitive with what they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I see them taking things like the Golden Dragon, which is right across the street from the fans, you know, which is a pretty prime location right there, right in the middle of things. You know, it's got a big, fancy hotel and whatnot. And they could, you know, they could give that thing a proper spiffing, you know, a real proper spiffing, uh, and as well as, you know, some of the other places that are – they have already have plans to redo, re- redecorate, possibly implode a, a, a bunch of sections of the Casino Lisboa. Uh, you know, they, they've got a lot of opportunity for things that they, they can do. Now, would it be possible for them to sort of you know, do kind of a cap and trade thing? That is, if they if they tear down one of their little casinos, could the the machines and the tables that are displaced by that be right. credited, as it were, to to Grand Lisboa or one of the newer properties? I don't really know the specifics of that, but uh, if you read the uh, the statement that uh, Stanley Ho or How, depending on how you wish to pronounce it, uh, made regarding the uh, Oceanus cancellation and how they're going to blow up the uh, casino, uh, the high lie, and he made it seem like that that kind of thing is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it looked – I didn't have uh, time to listen to the Las Vegas Sands conference call, unfortunately. I gather it was rather entertaining. But it, from from what I've been you know, reading about it afterwards, it sounds like uh, they've, they've run into a cannibalization problem there. I, I sort of got that impression as well. And actually, I wanted to talk about Las Vegas Sands financials. Um, in general, because they they missed, um, you know, the analysts were expecting them to do better, and they did not do that well, um, you know, which I think came in sort of a surprise, and they were punished to some degree in the market. Um, you know, what's going on with them? Uh, I mean, obviously in Las Vegas, we know that uh, Palazzo was ramping up pretty slowly, um, but in Macau, you know, it seems like they're being very hard hit by competition, um, and it's really showing. Well, aren't they, though? I mean, that may be, I think that's absolutely true. They've started slowly, um, as Chuck mentioned. They've started slowly at the Venetian Macau, um, and probably Sands is losing some of its mass market business to Venetian. So, um, you know, but, but. In the, I think that the the markets, you know, as always, the stock market so near term focused, mm. penalizing these companies probably more than is justified. Um, Sands more than anyone else is poised to capitalize on what is still allowed in terms of casino expansion. Um, what they have on Kotai, you know, a couple other operators have, you know, have the ability to build, you know, one property there, but Sands is going to have a bunch. And I mean, you know, the Venetian and all of its neighbors are going to have casinos that they operate and uh, all these high-end and middle-end hotel properties. And uh, so they're going to have a lot of capacity. They're going to be able to take advantage. There is no sign that the growth in visitation from from China and Hong Kong and the rest of uh, Asia is going to slow. Um, so I think that, you know, 
for anyone to think, you know, yeah, they started slow there. They started slow at, at, at you know, here in Las Vegas with the Venetian. They, you know, they started slow at Palazzo. But I think anybody who wants to bet against them in the long term, you know, it's it's probably, you know, based on their track record, it's a risky bet. Well, now to get to try and recapture some of the play that they've lost to, to Crown Macau because of the of the um, uh, the junket, uh, uh, con- oh, what's the word? Commissions, which I, which are also going to be going to be capped. Uh, that they're they're talking about extending credit to players, and I was that intrigued me because I was under the possibly mistaken impression that. That was one of the conditions for being allowed into Macau by the uh, Nevada authorities, among others, was that they wouldn't be getting into the position of extending credit. That that no, that's that was not where correct. the junketeers were making. This. No, that's not correct. The, the, okay. the Nevada authorities only the the Nevada authorities didn't take a position on credit. They wanted the the American operators wanted the Macau. To say that gambling debts are legally enforceable, um, and I and they have not done that, as to the best of my knowledge. Um, but that doesn't. But they. But because credit is a vital element in the casino business, they're going to make the decision, you know, based on the creditworthiness of the customer, I guess, and how desperate they are to get additional VIP play. Some of them are considering, or may even be granting credit now. Um, it's not against the it's not against the rules. It's just that the government doesn't back it up with the force of law like they do here in Nevada when you sign for a marker. Here in Nevada, you sign for a marker and you welch on your on your marker. You've written a bad check and are you know subject to the penalty of law. That would not be the case in Macau as of right now. So is that why Sands has held off doing it until now? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what their strategy is. I think most of the American operators have allowed the junket masters um, to provide the credit, and they just reap the benefits of the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really strange situation there with the dead ships, where they sell the dead ships to the junket people, then the junket people sell it to, I guess, another a sub-junket operator, and a lot of that is based on people coming from the same hometown or village. And so they, the people running the casino don't know who the sub um, junket people are and have absolutely no idea who's gambling in the casino, but they just get they just sell the dead ships and the um, junket people take the commission. Bizarre. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually surprised that the Gaming Control Board signed off on it um, a couple of years ago, but apparently they did. And I seem to recall that one of the reasons, one of wins, um, one of the things that Win wanted before he got involved with some assurances that he would be able right. to grant credit. I do remember that. I do remember that. Well, speaking of win, I mean, they also reported, and uh, they did pretty well. I, I think some analysts actually in, uh, expected them to do uh, slightly better than they did, but they uh, they showed a, a strong profit. Um, seems like Macau business for them hasn't been quite as as impacted by some of the newer uh, newer places than LVS, and uh, you know, Win Las Vegas seems like it's still going strong. Um, they also made an announcement that the Win Diamond Suites product in Macau, the expansion, uh, is now going to be called Encore at Win Macau. So they're unifying their brand um, more and more. Talked a little bit about Kotai and uh, 
and again saying that you know they're planning on building something that they describe as remarkable and exciting. Um, it'd be interesting to see if the Kotai project ends up, you know, the, the Wind Resorts has sort of not only created this brand naming situation with uh, Wind Macau, Wind Las Vegas, and the Encore, but also the buildings, as we've discussed in the past, and others have as well. You know, the buildings all look the same, or at least similar, and a lot have a lot of uh, similar architectural elements. It'll be interesting to see how or if that extends to Kotai. Um, given that, you know, I think Steve Wynn's been quoted saying that they expect the building to be architecturally significant. So, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, anybody see anything interesting in Wynn's um, call, announcements, or financials, other than the golf course thing, which we can talk about in a minute? Well, uh, to me, the, the well, they did they did experience a decline in profit, decline in cash flow, and uh, you know it's a connection to the market. Um, Win doesn't really give um, a rat's rear end about uh, about what Wall Street thinks, and uh, he has always said that he's going to, and he's made it clear in his conference call that he is going to uh, you know run his properties in a way that uh provides great customer service he's he cares about the long-term um impact on the brand he's not going to cut folks just to try and keep margins high so um you know i you know i think he is um he is doing better than most of his competitors um he does compete all you know at the, at the high end more than his competitors you know, I, I I agreed with I agree with you, Hunter. It was a pretty good quarter, relatively speaking, compared with compared with Sands, but it wasn't the same kind of knockout quarter he had a year a year before. Right. So, uh, you know, but then again, that's the times. But he certainly did great in Macau, and for the size of that casino, Chuck, you can probably um, comment on this better than anyone. But this the for the size of that casino in Macau, they really have captured a pretty surprising um, niche of the VIP market. I think they come in between, you know, 15, 16, 18% every month. And it's not that big of a property. Um, so, you know, they really sort of established themselves with an identity at the highest end. Um, you know, they're not doing it with, the, you know, the the shenanigans with the payouts and stuff or the, uh, the junket commissions. So, I, you know, I, I think that it's sort of tells something about how in both markets they've really been able to establish that premier identity. You're absolutely right. You know, uh, if you, you throw a win hotel into the mix where Casino Lisboa, you know, and the fans, which didn't even have a hotel, you know, is there, you're going to, you know, rattle some serious cages. You know, you're providing something that people – historically have flown from China to Vegas to go enjoy the latest Steve Wynn Resort. You bring one to them and open it up right in their front door, you're going to get a stream of people there. You know, it's, you know, the name cachet itself is huge. Uh, the, the, the resort itself, it's small, it's boutique-y, it's, but it's, you know, it's expanding. It's got huge amounts of shopping, uh, great dining. The rooms are fabulous. The customer service is probably better than any other hotel I've ever stayed in. I've stayed in a million of them. Uh, you know, so it, it, his plan of, you know, making sure that the customer experience is fabulous and everything will pay for itself, 
you know, I, I think he's definitely on the right track with that, and it seems to be paying off in the numbers. And 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 what he told me before it opened, he said it was vital to establish itself, establish Win Macau out of the box as being the elite place. He said that the as as status conscious as Americans are, the Chinese are even more status conscious, and so it's incredibly important to be perceived as the best place because that will drive a whole lot of extra visitation. Mm-hmm. So how has he been able to, to cultivate such a large share of, of the VIP market? I'm sure MGM would like to know because apparently they're they're uh, having some trouble cracking it. And how does, how does that work? I mean, I'll, I'll add to that question. How, and this shows my, uh, my lack of understanding of the Macanese market. How does that work with the junket operators and getting people in the door? I mean, do they are they paying more than others? Is there are there caps and limits on those percentages? I mean, I think that was part of one of those announcements, right? Is they're changing the way that that works? Or someone someone bring me up to speed on the on the options that these operators have, other than you know just being, hey, I'm Steve Wynn, come check out my place. How how, how can they bring people in the door through some of these third parties? The, the, the Macau Junket operation is probably one of the most mystically bizarre uh, amalgams of different types of relationships, uh, accounting procedures, uh, you know, under-the-table handshakes, and, and uh, other influence peddling. You know, to, to try and distill it into any uh, codified description beyond that it's inexplicable is uh, is kind of pointless. But you know, Wynn's cachet is that he, you know, it's the Wynn's cachet. Uh, they provide ex- excellent product to the gambler. The gambler wants to go there. The junket people will bring them there. Uh, you know, junket players, you know, the, the uh, AMAX thing, you know, they kind of uh, aggregated a bunch of other smaller junket operators and do some investments and give them some money to, to kind of cover the chips and They've signed an agreement with, you know, the uh, crown uh, based on a little higher of a junket percentage rate. Uh, there's also there's news right now that uh, that there's another meta junket aggregator that's going to start working at the uh, uh, Mandarin Oriental, which is theoretically what, I, what I've heard is that it's going to take some of Wynn's market share away. You know, so they're they're kind of upping you know, how much they're willing to pay. But Wynn was pretty pretty frank in his call that they are not going to up the uh, the amount of money that they're paying back to the junket operators uh, moving forward. When you get into the into the business of paying for business, he said that it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like a dead end road. They'll resort to that as a last, uh, last resort, but uh, they're not going to get into it. He really firmly believes that it's, you know the customer experience will bring junket operators to them. Ron, with Sands getting into the business of offering credit credit to players, I think you're already starting to see companies trying to brainstorm their way against this hard cap on on junket commissions. Because I, I don't remember off the top of my head what the percentage is, but once they hit that limit that, that Edmund Ho has reached, then, you know, then they have to have, you know, plan B and plan C to to keep one-upping each other. Yeah. 
that's part of the reason why they're, you know, taking a really strong look at this stuff. Otherwise, it's just going to get out of hand. Everybody's going to end up paying for business, and the junket operators will theoretically have all the power. You know, uh-huh. and then fans, you know, if you really look at what, what they said with their earnings, you know, their mass market was up. You know, their VIP has gotten pounded. That's where their big loss is. And the VIP, is, maybe it's only, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 or 1,000 players. But they're playing at such a ridiculous level that, right. you know, if, if if half of them end up going to Crown, Crown, which is one hotel out in practically, you know, like Prim, you know, <laughs> uh, one hotel, which is gorgeous, you know, it's great. But, uh, you know, that'll give them 25% of the market share. It's pretty insane. Right. All right. Well, Leaving Macau for a moment and jetting back over to the United States, there's a story out of Atlantic City that I wanted to get uh, some comment on. And and Dave Schwartz, I think I'll let you frame it, but basically the story is that casinos in Atlantic City uh, have gone smoke-free. Do I have that right? Yeah, they've actually just – city council just passed a law, an act, whatever it is, to make all to force all the casinos to go smoke free um, effective I don't know what date and what some of them have done is they they're going to build these indoor smoking lounges so I guess it'll be something sort of like you used to see at McCarran Airport where mm-hmm. you've got the little smoking cubicle and others of them and actually only one of them the Borgata has said they will go 100% smoke free huh. if people want to smoke they have to go outside Interesting. So the, arguably the highest-end property, maybe not arguably, <laughs> uh, in Atlantic City is just saying ixnay on the smoking altogether. Uh, you know, uh, well, how long until we see this in Nevada? I mean, this this seems like the train's left the station to some degree. Yeah, I mean, that's my big question. I think that it would, it would be a really interesting um, experiment or whatever marketing try for one of the bigger – for one of the bigger companies, either Harris or MGM, to try making one of their smaller properties, let's say New York, New York, smoke-free and see what happens and see uh-huh. if, see what happens with the play and the visitation. Um, I suspect that there's a lot of people who would prefer to play in a smoke-free casino, but that's just my own biased opinion. I stayed I stayed at a casino on Saturday night in Laughlin, at Harris Laughlin, that has a you know, a relatively separate smoke-free casino and then a smoking side of the casino. They don't have all of the games and all of the uh, slots that they have in the main casino and the smoke-free casino, but the smoke-free casino was pretty darn active. I mean, I'd say that, you know, 90% of the gaming positions had folks in them, which is a pretty high number for Nevada. Um, And, but, but, uh, you know, then again, its primary market is Californians, um, with some Arizonans, and um, so you're you're looking at a less at a market where people smoke less. My prediction is that by 2015, um, one way or the other, and the likeliest method would be an initiative that Nevada casinos will be smoke-free. Um, gentlemen, I have got to get off the call now, but I okay. appreciate uh, talking to everybody today, and look forward to uh, the next call. Thanks, Jeff. Um, we'll see you next time. I hope the rest of you guys can stay. i got a couple of other things I wanted to go over. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, back, to the smoking thing for, back to the smoking thing for a second. You know, I really think this would be a chance for, for 
one or more of the of the companies in Nevada Gaming to kind of step up and say, here, we're, we're going to get ahead of the curve. We're going to try something without sure. being forced to do it like they were in Atlantic City. You know, and obviously Harris has a major presence in Atlantic City, so they'll see what this does there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I, you know, if I were to, were to pick one operator who might just, you know, build the first non-smoking casino in Nevada, I'd go with Wynn. It just seems like the sort of thing that he would that he would roll the dice on. But as far as and as far as the casinos in Atlantic City, if he, I know that Donald Trump's been trying to get them to sue and they're not going to and I think maybe they realize they kind of brought this on themselves because they had the they could have kept a quarter of their floors as smoking and they just didn't get around to it. And um you know, it's another testimony to the power of, of casino workers when you know, when they're organized. I mean they were really the the, the the point of the the spear on this one it was they were they were very vocal about being fed up with working in in this kind of environment and uh, you know the city council listened yeah it's interesting i mean you know i uh it seems like it's inevitable coming living in a state that is already you know pretty much smoke free california here i've gotten used to it as a non-smoker really wasn't that big of an adjustment but um i you know i'll definitely say that i appreciate it and i i uh i'll look forward to it i I, i'm not a you know i won't move to the other side of the table if someone's smoking at a at a blackjack table doesn't bother me that much but at the same time um having the restaurants be smoke free i think has been an improvement and i wouldn't mind it to be throughout the whole casino and there are some casinos where in town where it's really you know it's not that problematic but there are others where uh, i mean that the it's basically you might as well just it's like vicariously smoking yourself because you just you go in there and you just this wall of of cigarette smoke hits you and i you know as far as for my taste nothing says grind joint like the pervasive smell of cigarettes everywhere right. you go right I think you're right. I agree with you with that for sure. All right. Well, that's something that we'll uh, definitely keep an eye on as it progresses. Um, one of the last things I wanted – well, actually, a couple other things depending on how much time we have. But uh, we, Wind Resorts did talk a little bit about the, their golf course redevelopment. We alluded to this earlier. And you know, for a long time, we've known that the land that is currently being used for the Wind Las Vegas golf course – is been slated to be redeveloped, um, and uh, we finally got a little bit more information about it. Um, basically, when Resorts has said that uh, they too will be jumping into the convention game, um, building two more hotels, um, a state-of-the-art convention center, and a lake similar to what you have at Bellagio. And uh, they talked about all kinds of things like underground uh, trains to ferry people between the places and and uh, conference rooms overlooking uh, water features and that sort of thing. Um, not being a f- close student of the Las Vegas convention market, is there enough – uh, is will this result in some excess supply? I mean, we're going to have then the Las Vegas Convention Center, the Sands Expo Center, or whatever follows it in its second incarnation. Um, the Mandalay 
uh, center. Uh, I mean, plus new space at you know a lot of these other resorts that are coming in, even if they're not huge spaces. Um, seems like a lot of space, and then at another million and a half or whatever Wynn's talking about, that that's a lot of uh, square footage. It is, and I think this might put the squeeze on Echelon and Fountain Blue, you know, both of which have a lot of convention stuff. Uh, I think Echelon's probably going to be more of the middle market conventions. It looks like what Wynn's done is he's decided that there is that there is a a top tier for the convention market that hasn't been tapped yet. And um, as we all know, watching the casino world, he tends to be pretty smart with what he does uh, for the most part. So I, you know, I think he's probably looked at this pretty well because he could do anything he wanted with that land. And um, I think he thinks there's a, there's a need for it. Yeah. Well, it would be interesting to see whether, you know, with uh, I mean, this might finally force uh, Adelson to lower his prices over at Las Vegas Sands, uh, because you know he's, he's uh, uh, right now his main tactic seems to be to try to force everybody else to raise theirs. But you know, I mean, if, if he's going to have a you know, rival convention center sitting on you know the other side of uh, of uh, the street, there it uh, would be an interesting dynamic. I mean, this puts them in direct. I mean, as if they weren't already competing on enough fronts before. This puts them in direct head-to-head competition. I mean, I mean, you know, if, if we didn't think there was animosity and and um, rivalry between them before, man, this is just going to kick it up a couple levels. And you know, to be perfectly honest, Las Vegas Sands probably are arrogant enough to think that they have this whole thing tapped, but. Uh, Win could be a pretty significant um, competitor to them in that business, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you're a meeting planner, if, you know, if you're the person who's making these arrangements and putting together the shows, I kind of would imagine that the Win people could do a really good job of wooing you, where the LVS people might just do their standard presentation. Yeah. Uh, Give you a, a Mega Center T-shirt and send you on. Your- yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I could see there being a real difference in quality. And if there's no difference in price or if Wynn is acting deeper, um, I think LVS is going to be scrambling. Well, I wish Je- Jeff was – I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to interject real quickly. Uh, a few years ago, I planned my own convention in Las Vegas, uh, which was basically me and my wife getting married with a handful of other people being around. Uh, and uh, – you know, we have done all the research and looked at all the other places and whatnot, and we decided to do it at Win mostly because of what Dave says. Uh, you know, the, the the staff there was fantastic. They were very helpful, and their prices were, you know, a little bit more, but the quality and the competitiveness of what they were offering was just fantastic. I think there will be, a you know, a big difference between having a Win convention you know, with their vision of how a convention floor and the layout and whatnot is versus, you know, the whatever 15, 20-year-old sand hall. Well, and the meeting areas at, at Wynn Las Vegas, I mean, I was uh, – I worked a convention there once, and, you know, it's not grandiose, but it's it's very nice. And, I mean, it makes quite a difference to be sitting in a meeting room where you're, you know, you're looking out at uh, – you know, over that golf course, and you can see sun and grass and yada, yada. But it just it's – as opposed to being in just another generic windowless ballroom at, you know, your property here. Uh I was going to say I wish that that uh, Jeff were still here because the the win announcement left uh, 
left me with a lot of a lot of questions and and not in a bad way i mean i'm curious in terms of trading off the golf course for a lake what's the difference in water utilization at first you think you know a lake why are they building a lake during a drought but you know considering how much they have to to water that golf course maybe it's actually going to be more efficient um what happens to the southeast corner of the property which is kind of cut off by the monorail i mean he owns that that acreage now but what how do they integrate that with the rest of of the property things like that i mean it's a sort of it, it's going to be very very intriguing to follow the evolution of this well and you know we'll definitely keep this project on our radar screen and uh this will certainly not be the last time that we talk about it um as it's certain to be a pretty major project that i'm, I'm sure will evolve uh over time and God knows when is to be commended for not offering a human sacrifice to to Wall Street, unlike uh, MGM Mirage. Yeah, well, I'm glad we're not going to see City Center too. Um, you know, City Center is a very another very interesting project, but uh, I probably I think I personally would have been disappointed if if that's the way that they decided to go. So I'm glad that it's going to be something a little bit different, even though. You know, not being a convention planner, I can only get so excited about convention space. But um, it should be interesting to see how it all plays out. And uh, having a large lake feature could be interesting. And hopefully it won't just be a repeat of Bellagio with, you know, a wet design fountain system. And that's call it a day. Hopefully we'll get something unique and interesting in there. And I think we probably will. Um, One of the last things I wanted to talk about today is something that seems to always be coming next year. To a theater near you. Uh, <laughs> I I never uh, you know it, I've heard this story many times and maybe it's actually coming this time because City Center is opening and this is in reference to the story server based gaming. Okay, so the idea behind server based gaming is um, that the video slots um, that you see all over a uh, casino floor could be uh, the games could be changed out. There are certain parameters um, that uh, govern how the games can be changed out. They can't change a game while you're in the middle of playing it. There are some specific criteria for the idle time that's required. But, you know, the result is that more popular games could – you could see more of them in peak times, basically adjust the uh, game mix on the fly to some degree or at least much more so than today. Um, and a host of other interesting options. Now, Dave Schwartz, I know you follow you followed this quite a bit. Um, do I have the bait that right, basically in a nutshell? And uh, yep. can you uh, can you flesh it out a little bit more? Absolutely. Pretty much, um, the manufacturer just puts a cabinet into the uh, casino floor, and then they run the software. It's kind of like if anybody does the main, the machine-emulated arcade games on your PC or not, um, uh, where you can basically put all the different games into one cabinet and that's all it is and it's supposed to have all these great savings i know they've been kicking this around since about 2004 every year g2e it's always the big thing i know they've been they started doing a test at treasure island i think two years ago one or two years ago and i haven't heard anything pro or con about that since um and i i yeah, I keep on waiting to hear that they're actually going to roll it out. So I guess they finally are going to roll it out. I think yeah, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think they had these at Crown, Crown Macau. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because they have a whole huge bag. They don't have too many slot machines, but they're all video video machines. Everything is all LED. So well, here's my the game my question. Out. You know, there are a lot of the most popular games. Okay, so I'm talking like your um, Wheel of Fortune and your even to a lesser degree Mega Bucks and and other games and other games that are very heavily themed and that's kind of their shtick. Um, you know, they're very, they're highly dependent on all the collateral materials that are built into the cabinet and all that sort of thing, and special feature kind of reels and whatnot. I mean, how does that jive with server-based gaming? Because, I mean, maybe if you love Double Diamond Deluxe with Cheese Part 3, you know, you can distribute that across the floor in no time. But some of these more popular games require, you know, extra stuff. How does that work? That's another one I was wondering, because a lot of those games are the participation games where IDP whoever else, but mostly IGT for the uh, Megabucks and Wheel of Fortune, pretty much owns the game, and the casino either rents it or splits profits from them. So right. I was wondering how that would factor in if they're doing the server-based. And I haven't really talked to people in the industry. I haven't really gotten a definitive answer anyway. So my guess is for the conceivable future, there would still be games with specialty cabinets that would be uh-huh. pretty much single purpose games. You also have the carousels and stuff like that and the, the link progressives. But they have you know, I know as far as the bonusing technology goes, they they developing the ability to link every game of the casino floor in a one big progressive. So they're doing all kinds of stuff like that and I think they're just waiting for a chance to roll it out. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think you'd ever have a you know hundred percent based server games simply because some of the machines like those those Wheel of Fortune ones where everybody sits around it in a circle. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't do that as a as a, as a server based game because that's all it's ever going to be is a Wheel of Fortune machine. But right. there's some. I mean, I've been trying to find out more. Of, it's very difficult to to get information. The people are very secretive about this. I mean, for instance, neither MGM nor IGT would would say where the server based machines at at Treasure Island are. Uh, I think you just have to you know, walk through and look at every machine and try to figure it out for yourself. But also machines where they're you know the, where they have very uh, you know the proprietary, high-profile kind of signage, you know things to you know to, to grab you from halfway across the casino floor. Um, you know, it just you, you bring that issue up, and people get very vague and non-committal, and um, you know, it's because one of in order for these things to be so interchangeable, then you know, the, you can't have very idiosyncratic machines or signage. There has to be a certain amount of uniformity. So, right. I, I, you know, it seems like there are a lot of unanswered questions still hanging out there. I agree. Holograms. And- Holograms. <laughs> I think you know. I think from a design point, which Hunter, maybe you would want to comment on this. Think how boring it would look if every machine looked exact, had the same exact cabinet. Well, right. Uh, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, obviously, just from a purely marketing standpoint, they the reason they went to all this cabinetry and interesting stuff was to differentiation. And I'm sure a lot of the game manufacturers and designers weren't wouldn't be too thrilled about everything just looking like a slot terminal. I mean. I understand the uh, the reason why operators are excited about this, but uh, you know it, it's clear that there's a lot of un- unanswered questions about the actual implementation. Well, and the, it, you you could either I mean if it when it's finally deployed, you because these mach- because these things take up a smaller footprint on the floor, you could have 
you know, you could jam more machines in there, or because you don't necessarily, because these games are going to be much more interchangeable, theoretically you could also thin out your slot floor because, you you know, the, uh, you know, you can have, you know, you don't necessarily need to have a machine that's dedicated to, um, Double diamonds or or whatever. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see which of those two courses of uh, the casino owners uh, choose to pursue, more density or less. As a slot player uh, or a periodic slot player, uh, you know the thing that bothers me about this is, you know, I know where I've got like a good five or ten machines that I can kind of count on. Well, maybe, well, I can't count on them at all, all right? But uh, I think I can count on them. You know, I know i got like a little voodoo relationship with one right next to Bugsy's Bar, a haywire machine. Don't tell anyone. You know, there's another one over Win Las Vegas, a triple diamond. It seems to be pride pretty. You know, if I know that these are never, that these don't exist, that this is all just vapor. Right. You know, then my relationship, my voodoo, my mysterious, you know, concept of peculiar luck and red underwear is, you know, it vanishes. And I think that that will happen with a lot of people who play slots. That's a good point. There is that superstitious element to it. And I know some people, I, you know, I am not in this category myself, but I saw people in the comments on my blog talking about, well, I don't trust this sort of thing. You know, they're, they're suspicious of it out of the gate. And to me, that's, I find that very interesting because it's not, you know, it's not where I would have gone in my head, but there are definitely some people that, you know, see this as unacceptable. Yeah, I, I've, I think there's a tendency in the industry to discount viewpoints like Chuck's pretty much out of hand. Like, oh, they, they adapted to ticket in, ticket out, and they'll adapt to this. And, uh, but I think he's making a very relevant point, and I think that the, you know, the, that that should be, that it should be taken more seriously. <clears throat> Yeah, I think um, one interesting point is that people have not adapted to guaranteed play yet, and that was rolled out with a lot of hoopla a while ago, oh. and everybody pretty much gave it the finger, and it's not really getting that much hoopla anymore. Yeah, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. You know, the the business press had a piece about uh, IGT having taken a drubbing on, on that front, among others, that guaranteed play was considered pretty much of a flop. <laughs> I think it, you know. I think it's interesting to see how that stuff plays out. But I agree that this isn't necessarily a guaranteed uptake. Um, you know, some players uh, don't trust it and are going to be suspicious. Well, and it probably doesn't help the issue of player trust when you know a member of the gaming control board said, as Mark Clayton did, that well, you know, maybe you could loosen the holds on these machines for your for your bigger players and tighten them up for your smaller players. That's not right. I mean, that's that's just not what's going to be music to your Joe Average slot players' ears. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. To the extent that I can speak for slot players. <laughs> well, I can, and I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If I knew that they were going to do that, you know, that would be headlines, at least on the spots that I blog. You know. Well, and even if you don't have a particular relationship with a particular machine, isn't it nice to know that, like, if I want to play Reel Em In, which I'm personally kind of fond of, that I know what part of the casino floor I can go to and find it? Yep, there is that element that I'm sure will frustrate some players, especially regulars. Just when the slot finder 
the whole concept of the slot finder on the like the right. the kiosk at the uh, in Hollywood and as you also have online. You know, now it's constantly going to be a mess. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's just it it rent, that was a great step forward, and this could could you know to, could render it obsolete before it's before it's run its course. Yeah, that's true. And I think I'm going to let that be the last word. Um, thank you guys for participating. Um, we'll go around the table and let you guys pimp whatever you're working on. I will say for Jeff Simpson, who's not here, um, go visit LasVegasSun.com. And uh, thanks, Jeff, for uh, for being a part of the show. Um, David McKee, uh, anything you want to uh, want people to check out this week? Well, we're doing a lot of uh, work. Constantly rolling out uh, new uh, aspects of our redesign at LasVegasAdvisor.com. So just keep checking in to see what's what's new this week. Excellent, Chuck. What about you? Yeah, we've got a lot of uh, stuff happening in the last uh, couple of weeks that's related to Macau. So uh, check out MacauTripping.com. Perfect, uh, Dave Schwartz. Well, I've got a redesign, a little retheme of DiesCast.com, so definitely check out DiesCast.com. It's a little bit of an LVS-type um, soft opening, where some parts <laughs> of the site are converted over, but many other parts aren't, so it's going to look kind of raspy for a little while with some of the older stuff, but it'll get there. Perfect. Hooray for comments. Hooray for comments. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think I should have comments back. Absolutely. And, um, you know, People can find me at ratevegas.com slash blog um, with more to come. Uh, Thanks again, guys. Have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you soon.